Yay. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Alan. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. <laughs> this is ready, exciting. Ready to talk about Marxism and class analysis. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is very important. I'm excited to talk about this. Some background that will be helpful for the audiences that Ryan and I go back like 15 years to the early days of high school, actually, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And then Ryan and I also passed some time together in Minneapolis in Minnesota, and then also in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And so we've maintained our friendship over the last decade and a half. And we've also been exploring different lenses of perception. And yes, and in this case, this related especially to meeting basic needs. For me, this is where I'm most interested in this topic is as basic needs are met, people get to expand their lens of perception to incorporate more self-actualization and self-realization. So both empowerment and enlightenment. And they get to do that based on leaving the contracted energy, which is feeling like they're entire consciousness is tied to economics it tied to earning a wage tied to labor and and so we're going to talk about that and uh ryan has been for the last two years involved in the marxist leninist from the angle especially of pharmacy which is where we're also going to talk about this as a pharmacist and um, most recently, also um, with the Center for Political Innovation, building a vision for socialism with American characteristics. So, and you guys may hear me call Ryan Cotton as we talk. <laughs> and Ryan, okay. yeah, yeah. And Ryan, you can, I know that for Ryan, it's funny calling me Atlas, but call me Atlas. Yeah. Okay. Atlas. <laughs> Atlas. <laughs> love it so all right cotton let's start things off with the journey and we have this really cool doc that ryan put together for us where we will we'll sort of be breaking down a lot of the the concepts in more detail for you guys um and we have these great visualizations as well and and hopefully they'll uh, enable a visualization of the core points that Ryan is going to be sharing with us. So I, f I find this intro to be really interesting with pharmacy because it's basically what everyone knows, Ryan. Everyone knows this. They go in to the doctor's office or any healthcare pharmacy. And what happens immediately is they're wondering, is the doctor or pharmacist incentives 
are they perverse? Are they tied to the company's uh, bottom line and profit? Or are they actually interested and invested in my health? And so that's a great intro into this. So let's, uh, let's have you kick it off. Yeah, thank you for that introduction, Atlas. Um, so I'll just kind of introduce how I got interested in Marxism. And like you said, it's only been two years for me. I'm, I'm relatively new to Marxism, um, but I feel that I've put a lot of work in to try to understand it. Um, and it's taken me a while to, to get to the positions I've come to. Um, so, so working in retail pharmacy and so seeing countless patients get burned by a healthcare system that puts profits before patients. In pharmacy school, we were taught a philosophy of care, a philosophy of care that always puts patients first. Seeing my patients frustrated with insurance policy and drug costs, I started working in the health payer industry where I quickly realized that there was a fundamental misalignment between the interests of my patients and the financial interests in healthcare. So I became a pharmacist to fight for my patients However, I've realized that fighting imperialism and advocating socialism seem to be the only way to resolve the contradictions in healthcare. So what, what started as just as a pharmacist trying to serve my patients turned into this long journey of discovering what was really holding our system back from evolving and it's, it's capitalism. And so um, since then, since then, I've been reading a lot of books. I used to not really be a reader, but I just got stacks and stacks of books here. Um, I got a huge bookshelf now. I, I do a lot of reading in my free time. So and um, also currently working with the Center for Political Innovation, um, trying to develop our ideological positions, working with a, a group of very devoted um, committed Marxist-Leninists and 21st century socialists. And um, kind of the position we've taken as an organization is that our role as communists, as Marxists, as class conscious workers is to, is to educate the masses. And so for, historically, the left has kind of been stuck in, in this movement politics um, without really an emphasis on going out to the broad population. And so that's what we believe is, is key right now is, is fostering a vision for what America could look like as a socialist country and, and getting that out to the masses. So there's two core points there that I really found critical, which was that the notion that you have this great incentive engine, which in a sense is if you end up doing some sort of profound innovation, capitalism will ensure that in many ways that you can get rewarded for this um, profound innovation and for hard work, which is cool and it's important. And yet at the same time, there's this extractive essence simultaneously that 
capitalism has promulgated. And we have to just be honest about that, where we're putting profits over people. And in that process, people feel like they're literally having their energy and life force sucked out of them for somebody else to be able to gain another materialistic possession. And so we have to be completely honest about that. And we have to also recognize that there are benefits to, and you'll probably hear me reference um, collectivism and merging collectivism with individualism. And I'll probably be calling it that, whereas you could also view it as like capitalism and socialism or communism. But I do like collectivism and individualism and merging those two together, like the best of both together into whatever the next generation future architecture is, which is what we'll also be talking about. And then the other thing that I like that you mentioned was this is what the redesigning is of the social contract, which puts people first, is that when you sort of gain awareness of the unity of all existence and being when you actually see everyone else as yourself when you sort of get to that high level of consciousness where you begin seeing everyone else as yourself all as that one intelligence which is this universe at play when you begin seeing that you have no other interest but to ensure like be in service to ensuring that people's basic needs are met and to be ensure and to ensure that people have fractional ownership in the next generation architectures and that we get to things like the Venus project or Star Trek as quickly and efficiently as, as possible. We have these big bright North stars. And so this is where decentralization blockchain, cryptocurrency, biomimicking the fungal networks and the internet and these different things that we've seen as a biological archetype, which we'll, we'll probably talk about more as, as we go through the show. But I, I, really imp- I'm, I really enjoy that first lens, which is everyone feels that so relatably is healthcare and is the doctor, the pharmacist, is the healthcare system actually having my interests first or is it putting the profits first? And this is also felt obviously with other industries like food is, is this food actually putting my health first or is this food putting their addictive substances first so that I come back and continue purchasing the food to increase the bottom line of the food company? So people are feeling this more and more and they feel very weird about how profit is being put first over people. Exactly. Yeah. Food isn't produced to feed people. It's produced so a capitalist can sell it and make a profit. Healthcare is the same way. It's, it's not there to heal people. It's, it's there to make people who've it's people, it's there to make profits. And it initially was put in place as because uh, there was demand for it um, by the by the working class, and so most of the gains we've made as a society have been advocated by the working class rising up and demanding it. 
And uh, the point you made about technology is really interesting because um, that's a really essential part of Marxism is that technology really drives the economy forward. And what's happened with capitalism is technology or in machines and robots, they're, they're called labor saving devices and that they've, they now compete with the workers. And that doesn't mean that technology is bad, but it means that that the capitalists are using technology to create an unemployed class and and um, yeah, workers aren't workers haven't benefited from the technology, the massive technology that that has happened in the past few decades. The workers haven't seen one one penny of it. It's it's gone directly up to the capitalists, and they're appropriating more and more today than they ever have. A wealth inequality is pretty insane right now. It's it's a historic levels, and uh, technology should be serving serving everyone, not just a few. So. I love, I love what you just said there. I'll provide some um, additional um, data, which is that um, the current statistics for um, wealth is that there are 2,200 billionaires on the planet and there are 225,000 ultra high net worth individuals and families, which ultra high net worth is 30 million plus in assets. And so um, in a sense, if you looked at this, like the, uh, like the fungal networks and how they relate to the, like the mother trees um, in the forest is that the mother trees that are extracting additional CO2 and then converting that in photosynthesis are serving the smaller trees and fungi with sugars, with the photosynthetic process. And so they're providing, as the mother tree, the additional resources to the smaller seedlings and smaller trees and fungi. And they're and there's a two-way resource exchange because the fungi are also taking out nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, water, and they're giving it to the other trees and mother trees as well. So it's not a one-way, it's two-way. But so now what we're looking at is the question would be, what's going on with the hyper-wealthy where out of every new dollar that is generated, and I think this, this is also a very important visualization is the the this this website is really helpful um for people what the fuck happened in 1971 wtf happened in 1971.com and what you see is that you have this median male income in around 1971 that flatlined right here Meanwhile, real GDP continued to skyrocket. And so now you have this real GDP that's continuing to skyrocket, which is mostly the highest 
uh, wealthiest people that are taking the profits of this real GDP skyrocketing. Meanwhile, median male income, as you know, with all of your friends, um, they're wondering, the friends that are in the vast majority of people, they're all wondering, why am I not seeing an increase in my purchasing power? And so now this is what, um, this is a really useful visualization. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. You point to that year, 19, 1971, because I was going to talk about that. It's in our, our document here um, and what what happened from the Marxist perspective that year. Um, Where is it, Ryan, in the doc? It's under the um, what, what happened after World War II. Right here? Yeah, and the rise of neoliberalism. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's do that then. Um, well, before we get all the way there, I'd like to cover a few more things. Let's do it. This part up here, right? Yeah. So, okay. So you were talking about our unity and realizing our, our unity. And so Marxists see that we're united as a class and what, cl what classes is our, our relationships to production. So most of us are workers. We, we have to work for a living. That's how we obtain our means of substance. Um, that's how we feed ourselves, house ourselves, all that. Um, the ruling class or the capitalists or the bourgeoisie, they live off the work of others. So they don't actually produce anything. They're living off the work that the workers have produced. And so so to understand class, we got to step back a little bit. Um, understand dialectical materialism, which is the philosophy of Marxism. And so, dialectical materialism is opposed to idealism, whereas dialectical materialism believes that our material reality forms our consciousness, whereas idealism is more utopian and it believes that our consciousness determines our material reality. And historical materialism is just applying dialectical materialism to history. And so this is the ma first major contribution that Marx made. And so in the, the Communist Manifesto here, it starts out on the first page. He says, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. So what does that really mean? Well, all throughout history, there's always been there's always been a division between a ruling class and a subordinate class, except for in the very beginning, where we, where um, Marx called it primitive communism. And this is like classless society. Um, you can think of hunting and gathering, or um, I think you shared with me a few years ago this Ubuntu society in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, you would too, yeah. Which was pretty interesting. And so they're a classless society. They yeah. they're uh there there's uh there isn't exploitation, there isn't a ruling class and an underclass that's working for the ruling class. Um they kind of all work together. But um as technology progressed um with the like, agricultural revolution, um hunting and gathering became inefficient, and so we saw the first major socioeconomic order, which was slavery. And so some major examples to think about what slavery looked like was Rome, um, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, 
And so in slavery, we had the ruling class, which was the masters, and the underclass was the slaves. And so eventually this system, um, there, so there's these contradictions, right? Um, and so the contradictions got too, got too intense and there had to be, they had to become resolved. And when they become resolved, we get a new system. So um, it became inefficient and what we needed was, was feudalism. So in, in feudalism, um, the Lords owned the land and the uh, serfs, they hired serfs to work on the land. So the serfs worked half, half their, half their, half their day's work went to paying the Lords off and the other half went to serving their family or whatever. Um, so feudalism was mostly in Europe and it was the Kings and the Queens. And eventually we know that that fell in the French revolution and uh, gave rise to capitalism. And so in capitalism, um, it wasn't an agrarian society like feudalism. We, we now had machines and industrial, and industrialization, um, which gave rise to the capitalist class, um, which we've we talked about, live off the work of others and then the workers. And so now the ruling class isn't, it's not kings and queens anymore. It's now this broader, broader group of capitalists. And when we think of capitalists, we have to be specific in who we're talking about. This is the 1%. This is the global elite. This isn't your, your restaurant owner or um, small business owner. Um, so we're not, we're it, not against. It's, it's the person that owns the land on that entire block that is then renting the buildings out to the business owners. Exactly. And land is a very important theme in this because in feudalism, the kings and the lords owned all the land. And so that was basically just transferred to the capitalists and now the capitalists own the land. Um, and so socialism, what that is, is it kind of flips those, that class relation on its head. And so now the workers are the ruling class or the proletariat and the capitalists, the bourgeoisie are now subordinate to the, to the working, working class. Um, so what I was saying about, um, small business owners, restaurant owners, this is, they have a better, they might have a better standard of life, standard of living. Um, so Marx categorized them as the petty bourgeoisie. And so they're not the big bourgeoisie, the capitalists, but they do, they do benefit from the system and they, they kind of go either way, depending on um, either way to, in um, supporting capitalists or the workers, kind of depending on the historical um, situation and which side serves their interests during that time. There's also another group called the Lumpen Proletariat, which is the criminal class, the drug dealers, burglars, and prostitution, um, pimps, and all that. And so there, both of these both of these groups, you can just consider them part of the working class still because they're the 99%. They're not part of this 1% that owns the land and owns the means of production and, and only serve themselves. 
Okay, so let's play with this for a little bit um, as we continue going through this because this is a this is a great um, beginning breakdown for us. So one thing that you mentioned that immediately got um, <clears throat> uh, a big going was that. the relationship between idealism or focusing on one's own inner subjective conscious experience and the relationship between the external materialistic architectures is very profound and important and the two are ultimately one but it's nice to also split them into two to understand them and so in this case both your own individual sovereign conscious experience and the way that you can have e deep amounts of equanimity with whatever is arising in perception and sensation is very important. But simultaneously, the planetary architectures themselves that enable you to be equanimous and peaceful are very important because if you're having a massive war or if you're having massive inequality, if you're not having your basic needs being met in your materialistic existence, then you're going to, that's profoundly going to influence your ability to be peaceful and happy and prosperous and flourishing. And so we have to merge those two things together um, as we awaken our and, and make our self-actualization and self-realization while we also enable these architectures that I like how you brought up the the essence of of land land was such a big one because it basically was the first monkeys that evolved and said that I'm going to have I'm going to own this piece of land and people were like what the fuck do you mean you're going to own this land this is we're we're the natural this is the Tao. This is the natural flow of existence. And you're going to just put a couple of stakes in the ground and say that I'm going to shoot you if you walk on this land. And then from there, everything dra so super drastically changed um, because then you have, like you described, you have people that are in this slave or serf or worker class. And then you have the people that are in the master, the Lord or the capitalistic class. And it's really important to understand that and to understand how to um, transition us slowly uh, and rapidly at the same time into where you have more fractional ownership, where you have more decentralization, where you have more maximizing prosperity for everyone um, simultaneously. I think that that was um, a great insight that that we were going through together is is recognizing the merging of idealism and materialism and recognizing the decentralization of land ownership and also of ownership of assets in general there's so few people that have ownership of stocks is another one and how can yeah. you make fr yeah <clears throat> fractional ownership of stocks more common where somebody with five bucks or ten bucks 
can own a little small portion of these next generation companies and how can then they get paid dividends for that process more easily to where it's not some massive conglomerate um, centralized entity that is managing everything, but rather it's a more decentralized frictionless process for people to become fraction, fractional owners. Yeah, so I think the material reality, materialist perspective, and the the um, idealist perspective of consciousness. Well, consciousness and material reality they're they're in a dialectic, and so they're working together, and and they will form a unity. Um, and that's what dialectics teaches is that. We see we see the problems in this world as as opposing forces, and eventually, they will meet and create something new. And so, yeah, land is land is a major major contradiction that we just live with. We accept that <laughs> that there's people that own the majority of the land. I was just looking at this this graphic that showed um, Bill Gates and how much land he owns all over the U.S. It's he owns like a major portion of land in over half the states. Um, and so, yeah, there's been this transformation as well within capitalism um, from more of an industrial base to more of a financial base. And so we can talk about that a little more later too. Um, but yeah, so these, these contradictions in society, they, they come together and they form the new the new system, and so that's what we've seen is this these classes the history the history of class struggle these classes are antagonistic to each other. They come together in a conflict, a revolution, and we we see a new system emerge. And so history is the history of class struggles, um, because each of these systems, as Marx recognized, each of them had has this class conflict between a ruling class and the subordinate class that conflict eventually comes together there's an explosion a revolution or something and we see the new system interesting yep which is basically what's happening right now again is people feeling like they are their basic needs aren't being met they don't have any inclusive stakeholding in the uh, real gdp continuing to skyrocket meanwhile their purchasing power is flatlining and there's more and more people that are like we want decentralization now we want fractional ownership now we want um, our basic needs met now we want this now um, and we need to architect this now and we need the help of billionaires and high net worth people to awaken to helping see the whole planet as their brothers and sisters, as their family in maximizing our collective potential. I can, uh, do you want to move down to the graphic, those two pictures? Yes. So another, this is another important subject to understand relating to historical materialism and dialectical materialism is this idea of the superstructure. So the superstructure, there's kind of two layers to society. 
so on the bottom, that, that red half circle or that blue box, that's the economic base. And so when we think of capitalism, feudalism, and slavery, it's not just an economic system, it's an entire social order. And it's based on the material, the material base. And so in feudalism, we had an agrarian society um, and, and that change with factories and industry, and, and that's, that's uh, the basis of capitalism. And so the top part is the ideology. And so that's how we think and act. Um, and things that fall into that category are art, culture, religion, philosophy, law, healthcare, politics, science, education, all those things. And so when we think about a capitalist society, there's always its corresponding ideology, which today is, is liberalism. Liberalism is the ideology of capitalism. And they shape each other. And so capitalism um, shapes how we think and act our ideology. And that actually goes back down and influences the economic system. And so they're always in, in this conflict. This is so important. This visual is so important. In, in, order, in order for you to be able to expand your consciousness, for you to um, awaken to your highest potential and possibility, you need your basic needs to be met. And you also need to be a fractional owner in the success of our species. It has to happen. The, the consciousness and materialism are ultimately one and they're in dialectic and you have to have your basic needs be met and you have to have fractional ownership in the planet's success um, for you to be able to achieve your highest potential. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck in a perpetual cycle of trying to meet your basic needs and you're never going to be able to explore your highest potential. And so this is what this is such a good way to to visualize what is is going on between um, awakening and um, physicalism or architectures. It's like you have two things. You have awakening and you have architectures. You have to have them both playing together at the same time. So we really need to hone in on external architectures to enable awakening as well. It's great. And so I think one of the problems in in the West and American society is we're, we've had an ideology pushed and imposed upon us. And so this ideology that, that we live in, and so we can see if we look at our institutions, um, like the, the military institutions, how, how, how that's so antagonistic to the workers and to humans. Um, our education system doesn't work in, in the capitalist society, at least today. Um, all these systems are kind of just breaking down right now. And they, and they, they, they seem like they're breaking down because they're antagonistic to the worker. Cause they're not, they're not the worker's ideology. They're the capitalist ideology. Um, and so the alternative to capitalist ideology, liberalism is Marxism. And so, that's what Marxism is. It's an ideology. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of analyzing the world. It's a tool to see 
it's a tool we can use to better understand the, the problems in the world. And so what socialism aims to do, one of the definitions of socialism is, is that it's the antithesis of capitalism. So it's, it's seeking to resolve many of the contradictions that capitalism has, has uh, brought about like the land contradiction. That's a, that's a major contradiction. The fact that we have to live with a state, a state that, that taxes us and uh, goes to war and taxes us for the wars. Um, yes. Yeah. That our, the state isn't particularly to anyone's liking, but it, um, and we can talk about more this more, but it, what one of the things Lenin articulated is he, he advanced the theory of Marxism in a few ways, but one of the ways is understanding the state as a tool of class oppression. So in a capitalist society, they utilize the state as an institution to serve their needs, to serve their interests, to, to serve profits. And in a socialist society, they use the state in a different way to serve, to serve public need. And so you had asked about class consciousness specifically, and I had to explain kind of all those things to get there. Um, Excellent. But being class conscious is simply just realizing that you're a worker in this class struggle, and you realize that there's a historical progression of society. So you re you're realizing your historical mission as a worker to, to, to play a role in the transition from capitalism to the to socialism and the higher stages of socialism. And it's really this process. Um, it's realizing that it's realizing a greater good, really. It's realizing that you have an obligation as a as a class conscious worker. You're not just a worker, you're someone who's who's actually realized this important fact of history. And that you have an obligation, a duty, and a mission to, to do something about it. Like imper imperialism and these wars. We have a duty to fight against that. That's bullshit. We don't want to be a part of that. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't advocate and support the wars. That's the ruling class who's pushed that upon us and manufactured consent to, to get us to buy into these wars. And so what we've seen today with the Bernie and Trump movement is that they're, they talked a lot, of, against, a lot about being anti-war and being anti-establishment. The establishment today is the neoliberals, um, and, and they're the ones in control, have been in control. Um, and so what they've really represented was something that wasn't class conscious, but they, they understand or they know that there's something really wrong at the core of our society. And so they are pushing back against the establishment and both have different solutions, class unconscious solutions. Um, but that's the role of the communists of the, of the class conscious worker is to push these movements forward to educate them and help them realize the vision and to help understand that the problems they're seeing are actually contradictions within capitalism that could be resolved.
Wow. So class consciousness is this transformation, at least what I've, what have I, what I've experienced the past few years is going from just a worker to a class conscious worker or what we call a proletariat. This process is also called proletarianization. Interesting. Once you become this class conscious worker, you could also call yourself a communist because that's, and communist is a weird word because it has a lot of weird definitions, but um, another another definition that Marx uses is that communism is for us not a state of affairs which is to be established, an ideal to which reality will have to adjust itself. We call communism the real movement which abolishes the present state of things. The present state of things is neoliberalism. It's capitalism in decay, imperialism, or what Lenin calls the highest stage of capitalism. The present state of things is not good. We want, we want a change that will benefit the public. And there is a movement already here in America. There's an objective communist movement here today. And that's what I think Bernie and Trump represent. And no one wants to call, I mean, you, you'd, be, you'd be laughed out of the room calling either of them a communist, but what, they, what their movements represent is possibly something communist. They're anti-war, anti-establishment against the neoliberal order that's been in charge. Um, and the people, the people in these movements understand something. They know that, that there's something wrong at the core. Um, one of my, uh, I have a, a really good quote from this book um, by Nelson Peary. He talks a lot about the role of the vanguard or the communists and what they should be doing. Uh, this book here. And he, he has a quote that the future is up to us. Yeah. The future is up to us. <laughs> and yeah, there's a cool uh, cover on there, but uh, he says that the role of the Vanguard or, or the class conscious worker is to help people understand what they already know. And so yep. I think we've realized that in our, in our in our work at the Center for Political Innovation, in realizing our role as educators in fostering a vision for a, a better America. Yep. Yep, and we'll be covering this in uh, in more detail as well um, in a little bit on the show. Um, so, one thing that you um, continuously reference, which I think is, is so beautiful. It's that, um, and this is sort of the angle that I've been so pumped about taking this as well is that, um, you, you, when you sort of get out of, um, what has been a habitual pattern of just running a script of going and working um, and then paying bills, like without having a, a level of metacognition or awareness of what you're doing, like awareness of your thinking process of why am I going to work these 40 hours to earn the money to pay the rent and the food? What, what kind of new architectures can I have to increase my freedom? Um, to increase my awakened states of consciousness, this type of thing for myself, my family, my community, all this. And 
I like I like how you talked about this like a shift, the proletarianization, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like how you talk about it like a shift in consciousness because it really is. It's like um, it's like gaining a level of metacognition about what you're doing and about how to um, enable your own deeper freedom and awakening and also your the planetary architectures that then feed back on um, elevating consciousness and on increasing fractional ownership and everybody getting shares of the pie and us having like a big planetary birthday party every day. And in order to get there, yeah, in order to get there, we have to sort of awaken from the existing architectures that are not serving us. And so, yeah. And nobody wants to pay um, a, a trillion dollars a year for a military industrial complex. Um, and it, it's like something ridiculous, like $600 billion a year for that. And then $60 billion a year for education. And Nikola Tesla was pointing at this as well, is that you have to flip those numbers around. You have to be putting in a trillion dollars a year into your education and be only putting in whatever a couple tens of billions into just like military research stuff that doesn't even have to do with war, but it has more to do with things like figuring out uh, unity generators, uh, figuring out fusion technology, figuring out clean renewable energies and whatnot, and having engineers and military be focused around that and not on imperialism. Um, and you're right, there's a huge uprising that's happened in um, politics where the average Joe, whether it's on the left or the right politically in the U.S., is awakening to um, what the fuck? I want a share in the success of this country. I want a share in the success of what I do every day. Like I deserve a fractional ownership in the company that I work for every day. Why do I, as an employee that's that's driving for Uber, not get a small amount of Uber ownership in the in tokens that then I've been driving for, for five years that I deserve a share of the token ownership and not just a paycheck, but also a share in the company success on the stock market as well. And so there's all these different ways to view um, how to increase fractional ownership and to make the transition towards um, a more decentralized ownership of planetary success. So Cool stuff. And, and this is really important because it locks your consciousness because Ryan's, Ryan's right. This is similar to myself and so many others is that you feel like your consciousness is locked in the existing scripts that are inhibiting your freedom. And the only way to liberate your consciousness is to become metacognized around your processes and then also to inspire more people to reflect on how to architect a more abundant, prosperous future. Yeah. And there's a lot of forces holding us back from becoming class conscious. Um, I'll talk about some of those in a bit. Um, but one of them is our already we've talked about is ideology and that liberalism and the, the ideology, the ideology of the ruling class is extremely antagonistic to us as workers. Um, 
And Marx has this term called alienation, which is pretty interesting. Um, so in the past, is that in here? No, I didn't write it. Okay. In. Okay. Alienation. Let's talk Sorry. about it. Cause you we were talking about the individual and how, so, so, so alienation, when we go back, um, and understanding our relationships to production, maybe in the past, we, we consider like a shoemaker, they would make a shoe and they would spend a lot of hard work in producing this shoe. And then they would sell it to their friend or their neighbor or somebody. And it would be, they would be providing a major service because people need shoes. And so, um, the worker back then was connected to their work and work is extremely important in our well-being and being able to to contribute to society it, through your work is is really important i think to being human and so marx describes this process of alienation where we're kind of becoming less human we're becoming alien because we're separated from our the products of our labor and so you can imagine like a McDonald's worker or something today where they, they don't have any relationship to the food that they, that they get, like the, the beef and the vegetables, they have nothing to do with, with where that's coming from. And then maybe they're working at a drive-through and they never even see the customer. Uh, they don't see the customer that they produce the food to satisfy. And so that's, that's really frustrating internally as a worker is that you don't get to, you don't get to see the benefit or the product of your, of your labor. Sorry, that's kind of a, a side, a side thing. Um, that's really important though. Cause if you're not, uh, feeling like you're, um, you're directly um, part of the serving of people with what you're doing um, every day in a helpful, flourishing, abundant way. And if you're not getting fractional ownership in that process, you're not going to feel healthy, happy, prosperous. Yeah. And you mentioned the Uber driver. This is a great example um, of, of a process that's happened since World War II. So before World War II, we had we had a lot of factories um, and we had a national economy and there's this term called Fordism, um, which is that these, these factories were, were unionized and they had a very efficient process um, to developing products. But since world war two, we've seen a globalization of the economy, which has pushed a lot of these jobs, these manufacturing jobs out of the country. Um, and so there's kind of this decentralized aspect of, of, of work today that really is alienating. And so I think, I think Uber, um, this, this term I'm kind of getting at is called post-Fordism. And so we no longer work in unions. We, we don't longer work in single factories. And there isn't a national business. This business is international now, and we're just kind of all pieces we're all kind of working in different places along the production line in different countries and, and whatnot. Um,
So I guess that gets me to kind of a, a bigger idea I wanted to cover was this within capitalism, there has been kind of two phases or even three phases. Um, so the two phases is that in each, each of the social socioeconomic systems have, have something like this. So there's a, there's a progressive phase and a reactionary phase. And so the progressive phase is, is the early period. It's the revolutionary phase and the, and the reactionary phase is kind of the decaying, the system is decaying. And, and so, and so in the progressive phase, there's people who wanted capitalism because it, because it was, an advancement beyond feudalism. And so we had the, like the Jacobins during the French revolution and the rise of industrialism. And this was all about kind of defeating feudalism and building up a new, a new system, which was re very revolutionary at the time. But um, later on as capitalism is uh, less effective. Um, there's, and we saw the rise of socialism in the USSR in 1917 and then China in 1949. Capitalism has been on this steep decline. And so there's, there's people within well, the ruling class, they want to protect and sustain this old system. And we had the same people during feudalism. There was royalists and, and loyalists who, who were reactionary to feudalism that wanted to keep that old system, that old way of thinking that were antagonistic to the revolutionary cap capitalists who wanted, who wanted, uh, who wanted industries and, and uh, private ownership instead of, instead of uh, nobility ownership. And so there's these two phases. And so right now we're in the reactionary phase of capitalism. And we've been in that system. I would say uh, <clears throat> everything changed in World War II, and part of that, part of the transformation of World War II, was going from where each capitalist state had a national economy to now where there's an, a global economy. And so, after World War II, there the uh, there was something called the Bretton Woods Agreement, which created a a world system pegged on the US dollar and was really just petrodollars because our our dollar was pretty much linked to to oil. Uh, so one of the one of the things I, I want to say so there there's these three phases as well. So I kind of talked about an early phase where there is this kind of really brutal industrialization and that's that's um that's where Marx worked he that's what he saw was early capitalism um the the writer uh charles dickens he talks about that time period where there was child labor people working 14 hour days and it was horrible um but later on as the productive forces developed there was enough enough wealth in society to provide social programs um, well, let me back up with the uh, early capitalism. It was basically like a free market. And so this free market, there was this increased frequency of, of crisis. 
1929, we had the really a really big crisis, which led to the Great Depression. And so what, um, what capitalist economists developed from the work of Maynard Keynes was this Keynesianism theory, which is that the state would intervene to prevent these crashes and would also provide social programs to the workers. And one of the, the reason they had to provide social programs is that they were on the other side of the world, they were dealing with the USSR. And so 1917, the USSR came about and there was socialism. And so capitalism needed, to, needed, a, needed a product that would compete with socialism because there was all these advances going on on the other side of the world. So, so capitalism, capitalism was also um, after the, sorry, after the, the Great Recession, there was a huge surge in communists here in America and a huge communist movement. The Socialist Party got a ton of votes in one of the elections there. And so there was this, basically the ruling class had two options. They either had to, had to do something to make the workers happy or they had to take this complete control of the, of the capitalist system. And so what FDR did was the New Deal, which, which um, created a welfare state and social programs. This was a class concession. It was concessions to the working class to prevent them from, from having a revolution because the, there's people asking for FDR's head. They weren't, they weren't happy about, about capitalism after the Great, Great Depression. Um, and so really the way this worked, these class concessions, they work to blunt class consciousness. Because if you're kind of being offered these social programs that did improve your standard of living, you were less, you were less able to kind of see the harsh realities of capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like getting a little uh, temporary um, relief for the, for being, for, for not looking to the depth root of the issue at hand. Yeah. So they're, they're buying off a section of the working class um, giving them a better life. So they didn't have to think about the, the class struggle, the, the realities of capital society that was happening. Um, so the, so the ruling class was, I mean, they were able to do this because capitalism was at its peak and there, there was high productivity. We still had a national economy at this time, but, um, but these programs, they, they were for a section of the working class, mostly white. Um, they're unionized. And so, so this created another kind of conflict between this wealthy white working class and, and non-white kind of um, non-white working class. And so we saw this emergence of the labor aristocracy, which is a really important term in Marxism. And so this labor aristocracy is just this, this section of the working class that had a better life than, than others. And so they, they had really no interest in, in a communist revolution or a socialist transition because their, their needs were being met. 
Um, but as we've seen with the decline of capitalism and the decay of our system in the face of, of China and rising socialism is that we've had the capitalism is turned into what Lenin calls imperialism or the highest stage of capitalism. So in order to sustain the high levels of profits that the capitalists were doing, really this Keynesianism, these social programs threatened their class interests and they're making less profits. So they, so they had to go elsewhere to make those profits. And so they went to the third world. And so what they've been doing is, and with, with most of the cold war is going to other countries, destroying any kind of social movements they have um, either through coups or um, manufactured protests. Um, and if, as a last resort wars um, to keep these third world countries poor. And so there's a, there's a really good quote by Michael Parenti and a video. Um, there's a video out there on YouTube of him saying this, but he says that the third world is not poor. You don't go to poor countries to make money. There are few, there are very few poor countries in this world. Most countries are rich. Only the people are poor. Ordinary people pay the costs of empire. These countries are not underdeveloped. They're overexploited. And so these countries are rich because they have so many natural resources, like, yep. like the Congo, for example. There's a wealth of resources in the Congo, but they've had a capitalist dictator and, and now capitalist leaders overseeing and, and appropriating the wealth for the ruling class in those countries rather than rather than a, a system, a socialist system that would serve the entire public. And so imperialism is a really key concept. It's not just wars. A lot of people in early Marxist or socialist thinkers will, will think it's just wars. But it's more than that. It's an it's an economic system, and it's the decay of capitalism. And so, as capitalism continues its decline, they'll they'll need to increasingly extract money from from the third world. And and so, the tension the the tension is only increased and only intensified um, as of late, and will only intensify. That's capitalism's only way out. Is, is to continue in an increasing exploitation. And, and so um, we've seen the decline in the disintegration of the labor aristocracy. We're moving manufacturing to the third world. And, and they're now bringing imperialism home. And so, and so people's, people are, uh, getting more and more exploited wealth inequality is even higher than it, than it's ever been. Um, another aspect of, of this phase is, is neoliberalism, which is austerity politics and pushing the burden, <clears throat> the financial burden of society increasingly from the ruling class who used to pay for a lot of social programs and pushing that responsibility onto the public, increasing their taxes, slashing the programs that serve them because it doesn't serve their interests like healthcare. There's no interest in the ruling class to provide healthcare. 
and there's no interest for them to provide housing or food. And so, and so, um, yeah, there's this major transformation that's taken place since uh, 1971. That year, that's that was the year that the Breton, Breton Woods system collapsed. And so, where where the U.S. economy was pegged on the dollar, the international community started to say that this isn't going to work because our, our debt was increasing. We were increasingly debt financing the wars and these social programs, both um, on the backs of the rest of the world who had to, who had to use petrodollars to pay back America and use only the dollar as the, as the world's reserve currency. So 1971, um, well, a little bit before that, like the French, were asking for their gold back from the United States. And uh, so Nixon was basically forced to, to suspend the gold standard in 1971. And, <clears throat> and so the world was no longer pegged on the dollar. There's now this floating currency or, or fiat currency. Um, and so basically we've just been printing unlimited money since then. Um, and that system again has collapsed in 2008 basically. And is, I think we're gonna see another collapse here soon, which is gonna be really destructive. And I th we thought it was gonna come with COVID and that kind of pushed it away, but there's something else coming. And, and the United States is uh, kind of, there's, there's a new alternative that's, that's going to emerge. Um, Yeah, I covered a lot of ideas there. Yep, yep. So this was probably one of the most insightful ways of of viewing um, the most recent transition. I like how when you look at it from the um, historical materials and perspective, you <clears throat> you almost see a full circling happening where we're kind of shifting back to a lot of the more indigenous, um, inclusive stakeholding planetary infrastructures where everyone has a share in the collective success and we're leveraging technology like decentralization and fractional ownership to make the transition back um, to where we're one with nature and we're one with each other um, after this, this swing into all of this technology and innovation and whatnot. And I like also how um, it's viewed, especially most recently, as um, the transition away from what looks like the most um, the most perverse incentives um, in the more neoliberalistic um, globalization uh, imperialism vibe, where there are our fellow. Um, brothers and sisters across all of these countries, billions, where they're also, rather than having their basic needs be focused on being served, there's also an extractive vibe that is present there as well. And so it's also not only in these incredible places like that I've had a lot of prosperity most recently, like the US, but also going into these um, countries where uh, there's 
we can hone in on the basic needs being met. We can do the leapfrogging where they don't have to go through the same style of the perverse incentives, but they can leapfrog the perverse incentives to the next generation arch inclusive stakeholding architectures. Um, that was really exciting as well. And yeah, one more one more transformation that I forgot to mention with neoliberalism is that there's there was this transformation before World War II from an industrial society, an industrial capitalist to now financial society and financial capital. So another word for imperial another word for imperialism is is finance capital monopoly or the monopoly of bankers. And so today we have a global elite, a banking elite that is control of the capitalist world. And so um it's it kind of goes back, I guess, to um like the American Revolution and that we we did the American Revolution because we didn't want kings overseas ruling us, but now we we have those kings they're back <laughs> and they're financial capitalists and they're the one percent and they run the world. And that their wealth is increasingly becoming concentrated um, with neoliberalism and great example of neoliberalism is Clinton. He deregulated the banking industry with Glass-Steagall. He deregulated the telecommunications company companies. Now we have this insane media monopoly. And so um, as capitalism is in decline, liberalism is collapsing onto itself. Um, and we've seen a lot of antagonistic elements come out of the ruling class. So with cancel culture today as an example, like the uh, ruling class, which is now centered around Silicon Valley and the tech, the tech economy, which is highly, highly financialized, same with healthcare, is uh, pushing, pushing uh, the, this culture war and censoring people and no one wants that the, the working classes knows that this is not good we don't we don't want this and so i think that's another part of this objective communist movement something that's forming underneath the surface that's another definition of, of marxism actually is is um being able to look beyond surface appearances to see to see what's going on. And so that's yes. why I use dialectics because um, it's, you can't just look at the surface and, and make conclusions about the world. You have, there's everything has a lot of nuance. And so, and there's a dialectic, a dialectic relationship always taking place and a kind of a, a struggle between, between two forces. Um, so understanding that those underlying forces is, is really, is really key. Yeah. This is a great way for people to ask themselves the question, what is at the root of my experience? Because when you ask yourself that question, <clears throat> your answer is typically awareness. Awareness is at the root of your experience, but then you also ask, well, what is your awareness bound to? And typically the <clears throat> first answer 
if you also recognize that it's un unbounded, it's not bound, but then it's also is bound to your basic needs being met. As in your, your fundamental social contracts, the fundamental architectures, the fundamental fractional ownership, the fundamental decentralization, the fundamental biomimicry, sustainability, renewables, all the good stuff that make it so that your awareness can stay fully liberated all the time and your architectures can feed back into your awakening is this is exactly the, the line of thinking that we need as people asking what is at the root um, beyond the surface appearances and how do we maximize our success um, at the root level architecturally. So, yes. One of the channels I follow is, is infrared. And uh, one of his lines is that, that Marxist Leninists are, are looking beyond the visible spectrum into the infrared. And so um, I think that's a really cool way to think about, about Marxism in uh, the way we think. Yes, Cotton, what else, what else um, here in this next um, section do you feel like is really um, critical to address? Yeah, uh, I wanna talk about this, this uh, concept called Bonapartism. Where is that on here? Is that on here? Um, yeah, just go up a little bit. Oh, there it is. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, and, so by, and and by the way, do you feel like you um, need to use the restroom? Are you okay right now? I'm I'm okay. You're okay. I'm gonna um, just go use the restroom very quickly. Continue speaking about Bonapartism, and I will join you back in uh, in just a moment. Okay. 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 <clears throat> so, yes, um, so in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, um, one of Marx's most important books, he describes what he calls Bonapartism. And Bonapartism is, is when there's divisions within the ruling class. And so, as I've mentioned, capitalism is in, de is in decay right now. And we don't have a we don't have a Keynesian system in the state to really protect the economy from crashes. And so what we've seen with 2008 and and since we've seen an increasing frequency of crashes and crisis within capitalism. And so as as these crisis crises in, continue. The, the ruling class becomes increasingly divided on how to handle on how to handle the situation, the situation of a declining economic system. And so, and so in uh, the 18th Vermeer here, um, he describes Bonaparte, who was kind of a strong man, and uh, he took control after in France after, after a lot of uh, turmoil, um, but he kind of um, had measures that served, that served the broad masses. He kind of had a populist message, but he also was pretty, pretty militaristic. Um, and so 
two good examples to think of Bonapartism is FDR and Hitler and the what they did exactly. So so FDR again with the rise of the communist movement in the 1930s, he kind of had two decisions. He could either um, take full control of the economy in in the interests of the ruling class, or he could um, provide class concessions to the workers to kind of blunt class consciousness and and um, give the workers a few crumbs. And uh, as we know, he went with uh, cl the class concessions. He 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 introduced the New Deal. Um, and uh, gave gave workers some breathing room in the United States, um, but also again um, blended class consciousness. On the on the right, we saw Hitler, and so what he did it wasn't class concessions; he did class control. And so he kind of he was a strong man who worked in the interests of the industrial capitalists in in Nazi Germany, and and made reforms that were in their interests um, and, and had a f kind of full repression against, against any communists. He slaughtered millions of communists after he went into power and had a very repressive state. Um, so there's kind of two routes you can go and, and fascism is the most extreme example of Bonapartism. Um, but today that's really what we need to be kind of having an open eyes and ears and looking out for fascism because, or fascism 2.0 or some kind of illiberal liberalism, because we don't have the industrial base that we did during the world war two period to provide, to provide class concessions. We don't have that. We don't have that, uh, that same type of economy anymore. And so really all the ruling class can do to sustain their profits is, is class control measures. Um, so that's why we've seen a lot of austerity. Um, the Hitler did a lot of austerity programs as well. Um, stripped a lot of social programs and pushed a lot of the burden onto the public. Um, but some other some other Bonapartists we can think about. Um, JFK was kind of a Bonapartist. He represented the industrial or not the industrial, the international finance sector of capitalists, which was kind of a new sector at that time in the 60s. Like I said, after World War II, we had this transition from a from a national global economy. The global economy is kind of what, what JFK represented. And there's some, some theories that maybe that's why he was assassinated because he was too good with them. Um, and then we had uh, Nixon, who is often called the last liberal president. Um, because he was the last Keynesian. He was the last guy who, who had social programs. He developed like the, the EPA, um, Environmental Protection Agency, and, and he really served one section of, of the ruling class. Um, so, today, so, so today, as capitalism is, is facing another crisis, we've seen this division between between the ruling classes. And so that's, I think this is the best way to understand the divisions between the Republicans and the Democrats is that this isn't a division between the working class. This is a division between the ruling class 
And so Biden rep- and Clinton and Obama, what they represent is the is neoliberalism, is this austerity politics, is is global financial capital monopoly. And uh, Trump and Bernie, well, Trump because he actually got elected, um, really pushed back against this establishment. Um, he had protectionist type of economy. He had put a lot of tariffs on China, um, and that is antagonistic to the neoliberal economy, um, which, which, uh, advocates for a free global market. Um, so, so this idea of false consciousness kind of emerges here because these divisions, again, they're not divisions within the working class, the divisions within the ruling class. And so they've, they projected this division and made a lot of us think that that's what we should fight for as well. So, so there's um, a lot of people who identify with the parties. And I, again, it's important to, to, to say that this country isn't split half and half as a lot of people will, will think it's half of the people didn't vote for Biden and half of the people didn't vote for Trump. It's a quarter quarter of Americans voted for Biden and a quarter of Americans voted for Trump. And these people may have been, may have been um, kind of influenced by what Marx would call a false consciousness or it's the consciousness. It's not their consciousness as workers. It's the consciousness of the ruling class. So it's false. It's not their consciousness. It's the ideology of the ruling class. Um, And so work, the working class, I think, is, is becoming more united. And I think that is one of the tasks of the class-conscious worker of communists today is to help workers realize that they're united. I didn't mention the other half of Americans are the people that didn't vote, the 150 Americans that didn't vote, that realize this system doesn't work and they don't even want to vote because it doesn't serve them there's a huge untapped potential in this in America today to win these people over. If we win over half of Bernie or uh, half of Biden voters and half of Trump voters and half of this 150 American, 150 million Americans that didn't vote, we could have a viable third party that could challenge the neoliberal social order that exists today. And so it's important today, right now, as our task to to help educate the masses and reach those people, those 150 million people that that aren't stupid. They 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 know something very very important, and that the system isn't working for them. Yeah, so, activating the other 150 million people in the U.S. and even worldwide, people know that. This type of non-inclusive stakeholding, this exclusive stakeholding is not working for them. And so it's great to figure out the ways to activate um, their engagement in building out the decentralized architectures, inclusive stakeholding, activating awakening consciousness, all of that. And by the way, Cotton, as we keep talking, I just want to I just want to reference hit as many of the core essences 
as possible as we keep talking, because a lot of this is also um, it's insightful, but it is kind of it can kind of get a little bit into the weeds. And I also want to stay at like the core essences as much as possible as we um, keep playing. Yeah, I did want to just mention one more thing about Bonapartism. So the way that's manifested in the United States is that the Democrats um, coming all the way from the Carter era and beyond, they represent more of a soft power. And the, the Republicans and the neocons like Bush advocate more of a hard power. So there's always been this, this rift in, in America in the middle in the um, military industrial complex or the ruling class between there's been this rift between the CIA and the Pentagon. So the CIA tends to kind of worked undercover. They work undercover covertly in other countries to um, manufacture these protests and coups. And um, I mean, they're not, they're not all about war. Whereas the hard power, the Pentagon, the Republicans, these neocons will will um, push military intervention and invasions, and so I mean that's where I, the Iraq War came from, um, in the, um, as as opposed to um, like some of the coups that the CIA did. Um, I mean, there's so many, but there there's they're they're trying to do a few right now, like in Cuba. Cuba right now, there's there's these manufactured protests, like CIA-backed Biden-supporting su protests in Cuba um, from a very small fraction of disgruntled Cubans. Um, and they're trying to manufacture this, this unrest in the country, whereas the majority of Cubans support the government and have been in the streets in the millions fighting what the U.S. is trying to do right now, um, but the, the CIA—they uh, if you just look at uh, Libya, Libya had a socialist government under Gaddafi. They're the most prosperous country in Africa, and uh, Obama and Hillary went in there and and killed and assassinated Gaddafi, and so that place has just been in ruins ever since. They have open slave trade. Um, and they didn't need a full-on military invasion. They, and there was pr pretty invasive still, sending in an assassination. But um, this just happens over and over. I, I made a whole video, like a two-and-a-half-hour video, about, about a lot of the CIA coups and military interventions that, <clears throat> that have taken place. Yeah. So you could check that out if you want to learn more about our coups and everything. We've been in every single continent in almost every single country, really, doing bad things. These links are in the bio below, by the way, for you guys as Ryan's YouTube channel and his uh, Twitter, so you guys can check this out. Ryan, um, Let's uh, because we have we have a good amount of this to still cover. Um, let's let's hone in on sort of the essence. We already covered um, some of this, but I, I feel like this is still a core aspect for us to cover. And then we have um, the shift to seeing what is better. 
and also um, talking about the CPI and then um, and then wrapping up with this. So so let's um, let's 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 continue at the essence of uh, of this. So what is what would you say is there to cover here with the essence as we go down? Well, yeah, I just want to like ideology has been really important for me to understand and trying to understand how ideology works because it's something that's hard to understand, I guess, once if you're in it. And a lot of people don't realize how intellectual or how ideological they really are. Yes. Um, there's a clip out there from Slavlov Zizek. Zizek. Yeah, yeah. his name, but Zizek, uh, I think is how it's pronounced. Yeah. yeah. Um, or he says, we're always in the trash can. Um, we're, we're always eating ideology and it's, it's from the trash can. Like we're always consuming this ideology, even though we don't realize it. Um, so it's always there. It's always, it's always present. Um, and so one of the, one of the uh, tasks of socialism is to take back control of these institutions, um, the state uh, law institutions, scientific institutions, the military, the police take control of these or these institutions and create what what Lenin called the dictatorship of the proletariat. Well, Marx said it too. Um, and this this term has been um, <clears throat> troublesome a little bit because it has the word dictatorship in it. Um, but what it means is, dictatorship of the proletariat, the working class masses, the workers are in control rather than the capitalists. So today we live in the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. We live under the dictatorship of the capitalists. They, they are the rulers and they, they produce the ideology or sustain the ideology that we, that tells us how we think and how we act, what we believe. And so a lot of our lens and how we see the world is, is, um, is distorted through, through this ideology. Wow. Yeah. There's a, <clears throat> there's a lot of mimetics that are spread down. There's a lot of memes and ideas that are spread downward. Uh, like you were talking about with false consciousness and there's a lot of just, um, this dictatorship of the like plutocrats um, that are running the entire planet and that just create a lot of noise um, and create a lot of, of um, ill will um, rather than um, <clears throat> just look at the mainstream news and see that it's not about people doing good things and about maximizing human potential, but it's all about trying to put one a group of people against another group of people. And that is uh, the false consciousness versus the all the good things that are happening entrepreneurially, scientifically, um, revolutionarily across the planet and how we can continue um, sparking those um, those great 
initiative. So I see, so there's in that like bottom up grassroots awakening is the people that are awakening is to take leadership roles in the main um, newly designed institutions to then further create um, more feedback loop. That's great. Yeah, so some of the teachings of the ideology of liberalism and capitalism is that one of the things that comes out of that is that this idea that the West is the best or that socialism has always failed. And really what that is mean, really they overlook the fact that socialism did work. And I mean, we can talk about that, that next um, <clears throat> with the USSR and China is that socialism does work there. Um, and it's, I think it's really important as Marxists or socialists to realize and understand that social, that China is socialist. Um, some people will try to try to twist Marx's words or the, the way they understand Marx into to justify some kind of narrative that, that China is capitalist. And I think, think once you get deeper into Marxism, you realize this is clearly not the case. Interesting. So you, you've termed China as an advanced Marxist. I think understanding China is advanced Marxism. At least it was for me. I, it took me a long time to even approach the question of China. Totally. Um, yeah, they're fascinating. You know, I visited in 2019, right? We talked yeah, about that. That's yeah, really cool. I, I went for almost a month. Yeah, that this is this is a really interesting point about. Um, yeah, let's play with this. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see um, how this unfolds together. Keep playing with this. Yeah. So first, to understand China, you need to understand what happened in the USSR, and so. That's a big topic, but um, I think the USSR focused a lot on a, a lot on a centralized planned economy, and their main goal is to raise the productive forces in the country through a planned economy, and that worked all fine and well, um, at least during the Stalin era, and it worked it worked in China as well. Um, during the Mao period. Um, but with, with uh, World War II and the rise of the global economy, it kind of presented a new challenge for these countries. And so one of the really important aspects of China was that they were able to, to kind of pivot and change their approach and evolve, whereas the USSR was more rigid and and uh, had a lot of cor internal corruption and wasn't able to really, to really evolve with the changing times. After tens of millions of deaths, we do need to just also address that there was um, a lot of <clears throat> ridiculous um, uh, <clears throat> attempt at, uh, at something that was um, looked at, uh, thinking that it would be, yeah, fantastic. And that there were ten, tens of millions of deaths in that process. And so obviously there's a big learning 
that happened from that process, but it's still important to take that into um, our calculus. Yeah. Yeah. And regarding that, there's a huge amount of nuance around the USSR and, and early China and understanding kind of what happened there and why. I mean, these countries came out of came out of they were backward countries, feudalist agrarian societies, and they had an in the greatest explosion in human history that we've ever seen. I mean, USSR went from this backwards agrarian society to the space age in a lifetime, 50 years. Like that's, that's pretty amazing to me. Um, <clears throat> and during the Mao period, life expectancy doubled and went, it increased 31 years. So people, the Chinese people may have seen their grandparents die at age 30 something now living to age 60 and now today, um, beyond age 75. Um, so that's, that's definitely one of the most remarkable accomplishments of socialism and specifically like China is that they've been able to, to just dramatically increase the living standard of the people living there. Um, <clears throat> So with with Mao, I mean he he was there from the the when the People's Republic of China took over in 1979 till till was in 1976, I think, when he died. Um, and so he was able to oversee kind of this centralized plan economy. Um, and so one of the differences between the USSR and China was that the USSR mobilize the proletariat or the industrial workers to to do the revolution whereas whereas China focused more on the peasants and that was just because they had a, they had a different they're in different historical contexts and a, a different different situation in each country um, but yeah one of the problems with China and Mao is that they um, <clears throat> there was like the great leap forward, the cultural revolution and the gang of four um, that happened. And, and uh, yeah, a lot of people died and it was a mistake. Um, but really what they're trying to do with the cultural revolution is, is try, they tried to get rid of class um, and tried to make more people more equal. They, they moved a lot of students kind of rich, wealthier students from the cities into the into the countryside so they could learn how how the agr agrarian workers worked um and so they tried to integrate society in that way um so there might have been kind of like these good ideals behind it but really the society wasn't ready for that type of massive change and so that's where this really important figure, uh, Deng Xiaoping, comes into play. Is after Mao died, he was able to take control. He um, he put the Gang of Four on trial for their atrocities during the Cultural Revolution, um, <clears throat> and really responded to to the new global economic context of global capitalism by opening the country up. Um, by a reform and opening up. Um, so they, so they started to allow, started to allow, um, 
kind of free markets to enter the country and allowed external investors to enter China. And so that's where the kind of relationship between China and, and the US started. Um, <clears throat> and so what, what uh, Deng Xiaoping did was um, he articulated what, what would be socialism with Chinese characteristics. And so one of Mao, um, Mao kind of, Mao kind of mimicked the uh, USSR's economy in a sense, in that it was centrally planned and it kind of did the same thing the USSR did. But what, what uh, Deng Xiaoping did was socialism with Chinese characteristics, which was an attempt to kind of um, have, um, have socialism in the context of the Chinese um, in their own specific the own their the specific problems within China to address the specific issues within China. Um, so one thing that it seems like has happened since um, since China's like last decade or so, especially of um, advancement um, materialistically, is that there has been a greater amount of basic <laughs> basic needs that have been met. And that has, in a sense, liberated people to be able to pursue whatever sort of scientific or engineering style of advancement. Um, now, there are specific also limitations to that um, freedom simultaneously with a little bit around the um, social crediting system, and um, which aims to act as a forcing function for morality and ethics, which I think is really also simultaneously interesting. Um, but um, there is a little bit of restriction on um, on Taoism um, and on spirituality, um, whereas vast majority of the of um, spiritual uh, ideas are Confucianist. But um, there there's still quite a lot of fascinating um, <clears throat> energetic actualization in China, given the. Um, advancement that has happened materialistically. Um, yeah, which has been super fascinating to see. Exactly. So Deng Xiaoping really focused on Marxism and how, and how Marx says that we need to develop the productive forces and create the wealth and abundance before we can really do socialism um, and, and start and what, before you can start to resolve some of the contradictions, like the class contradiction and the state contradiction, um, you need to create the wealth and abundance required for socialism. And so that was their mistake with the cultural revolution. They tried to push, push the ideology ahead of the economic base and that created a lot of tension and they weren't ready for it. And so um, Deng Xiaoping, that's what he realized this is amazing. I'm always blown away by Deng Xiaoping's ability to have, to be able to step back, say we made mistakes and, and evolve and change and, and, and build and do what China's done since the 1978 when Deng Xiaoping came into power. Um, yeah. So I think that's, this is a huge spot where Western leftists and actual Marxists 
again in disagreement because Marxists, like the Western leftists, think that socialism is about going backwards to to um, to that primitive communism or something. Um, whereas Marxism is more about like they think we all need to. Um, the Western leftists think that we all need to be poor, that we all need to be poor, but um, Marxists believe that we should all be richer. Um, we should all, we should all, of course, um, it's about <laughs> Every, that wealth and abundance to create socialism and communism yeah. after. Everyone deserves a fucking big, nice, fat slice of the collective pie. Uh, enabling yeah. their fullest actualization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In harmony with the earth. This is crucial. Another aspect of socialism with Chinese characteristics is that it embraces Chinese culture. So China has a long, rich history. That, that civilization has been there for 5,000 years. And with the Mao period, he cracked down on religion and Confucianism. Um, And um, what we've seen today with with Xi Jinping is that they're they're reintroducing Confucianism and they're kind of they're allowing it and um, they're, they're just not they're not restrictive as much because they realize that it's it's part of the history of China. Um, so they're really embracing embracing the the culture as opposed to the USSR, which where they kind of only considered history, the USSR considered history starting in 1917 when the communists took power. They they kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater or whatever. Um, they didn't care about the past. Or they kind of threw it away um, because because it was a dark a dark past, you know, with uh, the czarist Russia and and what happened there. Um, so yeah, they um, China was able to kind of evolve and embrace embrace their cultural their cultural history. And, a, and another important point is that Deng Xiaoping said they would never do they would never do what the USSR did to Stalin. What they they would never do that to Mao. And so in the USSR, after Stalin died, Khrushchev gave this famous speech that said Stalin was bad and, and um, they just really denounced the Stalin period. Whereas China, they've kind of taken a different approach, a dialectical approach and, and realized that Mao did make amazing advances. He, he, he uh, helped industrialize the country and um, double the life expectancy, decreased illiteracy he made a lot of advancements, but he made them all a, a lot of mistakes. And the, the Chinese Communist Party today recognizes the Cultural Revolution and such as a mistake. And so I think that's really important to understand, understanding China. It's also really important in understanding the U.S. in the sense of if the U.S. can become more transparent to its own incredible beneficial architectures that have enabled prosperity and then also look at its pathologies and cancers and non-inclusive stakeholding 
And if we can become really honest with how to um, take what's been working and what's good and add that with these new ideas and new architectures to enable prosperity, because the U.S. right now isn't having a very transparent discussion with itself about um, what is most optimal. Yeah. Exactly. And I think a lot of that is because the U.S., the ruling class is divided and that they they don't have a unified position on how to move forward. I mean, there's the neoliberals who want to usher in the Great Reset and and all the <clears throat> austerity that will come with that. And then there's another side that wants to. So, yeah, the the um, the neoliberals another way to understand this is that they represent the largest and the largest, most concentrated sector of capital and usually global capital. The Trump represented a different sector of capitalists. He represented kind of the smaller national capitalists and wanted to preserve the national economy versus the neoliberals, which advocate for making money on a global economy. And so there, there's this division right now on how to how to move forward and how to protect and save capitalism, which I don't think can be saved. It's just going to decay, and they're going to use more class control measures to stay in control. Um, we're seeing what we've seen with China is proof that socialism works and that it's superior. I mean. I mean, you visited, I'm sure, I'm sure you could attest to some of this, but they're really advancing way beyond the ability that capitalism can at this time. And that's because they have, they have, they have socialism. They have, they have 95 million communist party members working to build socialism in that country. They, they're able to make 100-year plans and 50-year plans to get shit done, unlike the U.S. and capitalists, which focuses on like five-year budget impact models and, and only does things if there's somebody profiting, if there's a profit to make. China doesn't operate that way. I mean, they want to build, they want to build up society um, with, they allow people to make profits, um, like Huawei and Alibaba and all that. They're not against like billionaires aren't exactly the problem here because there's Chinese billionaires. And when they get out of line, the they, they hear about it from the Chinese Communist Party. Um, there's been there's been billionaires executed by the Communist Party, people that they've found out have been exploiting workers and taking advantage of workers or, or whatnot. Um so it's it's still important to build up the the economic. It's important to do economic development, and and that's an important aspect of building socialism. But that that doesn't mean it's it's capitalism. And so a lot of liberals here in the West make this this fatal reduction where they say that capitalism is markets and socialism is is a planned economy, and that's just false. Um, they also try to say that like, like the post office or, or the fire department socialism or roads. And they, they say that that's socialism, but um, 
markets or, or capitalism and so they can coexist. Well, that's that's not true either. These are mutually exclusive terms. Again, they're it's an entire social order with the base and superstructure above it. And so in China, we don't, they don't have that same base and superstructure. They have socialism as their economic base and their ideology is Marxism. And so one of Xi Jinping's projects in China has been to kind of revitalize ideology in China. Uh, and again, they're, I think they're doing that because they realized that was one of the mistakes of the USSR. The USSR failed at in their ideology. They weren't able to sustain Marxist ideology through several generations past the revolution. Uh, they didn't really know what they had. They didn't know what they're fighting for. And so they just, they kind of had this idealistic starry eyed vision of the West and capitalism, which, which had a huge, huge step ahead. I mean, capitalism is, was this was the system and establishment before they came to power and they are they're already at their peak when the ussr basically came into existence and so um there's this big man kind of this big mistranslation between the east and the west and china's been able to been able to to pivot and kind of kind of evolve with the changing times and so one of the biggest goals of the Chinese um, Communist Party has been to eliminate poverty. And so just last year, they they announced that they were able to, to eliminate absolute poverty for 90 million people in that country. Um, so just another huge achievement of, of the Communist Party. And so like anyone who says that China is capitalist doesn't really understand Marxism. This is so good. It plays it plays so well into what into what you were just saying. This is the video that we made um, at the end of our trip in 2019 and uh, coming back to, from doing the interviews and my, my mind being blown by their rich history, culture and roaring economic success. And here, you know, there's Mao, right? And there's, you know, there's the respect that's still there. Um, and, you know, they're just incredible technological advancements. And, um, you know, everything is so QR driven, right? This is, uh, um, you know, QR code and um, just payment uh, without card. This is AI facial recognition for entering Peking University. Um, so, this is what you were talking about a moment ago, which is most people don't know, but this little um, this little visualization of of Chinese companies is a basically analogous um, Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei, Baidu, ByteDance, Billy Billy, uh, Sina, etc. Are analogous DJI. They're analogous to this for us. Um, to the Google and and uh, and Amazon and Netflix and Facebook and Twitter and Tesla, Uber, Microsoft, etc. And so you don't actually notice that um, that uh, and this is the Belt and Road Initiative, which will I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, I saw that on the list, so we'll talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. But that um, you don't actually notice that 
Um, this is from Westlake University, the first public-private um, research partnership um, in China that actually enables um, there to be a, a, um, a, a private interest in what is happening at the same time as uh, public um, guidance. And this is what their architected campus is uh, looking like that they're going to be moving into soon. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And so um, I just this was a this was very profoundly influential. Um, and you know, when you look at things like like uh, um, like this, you know, you're you're really talking about the future in many ways. And you know, this is nothing like what it is portrayed in the media. Again, you have to have your own um, like brothers and sisters and your own perspective in terms of your own relations with friends that are there and building connection and family with people and not just relying on the false consciousness media narratives that are being promulgated. So that's a great way um, to put it. So um, we'll also put this video in the um, in the bio of of the um, conversation with Ryan um, from our from our channel. So um, let's uh, let's continue pulling this up. So we wanted to talk about um, Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's important to understand that China is not imperialist. Again, uh, imperialism is an economic system. It comes out of the decay of capitalism and it seeks to make the world poor. It goes into other countries, exploits their markets for their benefit, for, for a, a wealthy global elite to profit and keep these countries poor and under their thumb. And so um, these are zero sum games, imperialism. Um, we go in the U S or uh, whatever capitalist countries go into the Congo, exploit their resources. The Con Congo Congolese people aren't getting any of that benefit. Um, and so what China, the amazing progress that China has made with the Belt and Road Initiative under Xi Jinping is that they're actually creating an alternative to imperialism, this global financial order that's taken hold of the world. And so what they've done is they created a network within 100 countries, over 100 countries now. They've created this network where they'll build infrastructure. They, they use the um, Asian Investment Bank on a, and they, they, they use the bank to fund these infrastructure projects to lift the people in those impoverished countries so they're more, so the, they can have economic development, which is which imperialism has been holding them back from. Um, so it's more about developing locally rather than extracting. Yeah, and and also creating an alternative kind of Silk Road um, to to circulate products as an alternative to so they don't have to go to a to a Western imperialist country to get whatever resource they need. There's kind of a network working together and they, and they make these deals based on this idea of mutual benefit on the basis of mutual benefit. Um, so they're making sure that both, both countries are winning 
and there isn't a loser. And so normally imperialism will go to a country and they'll, they'll work with this group of capitalists or national bourgeoisie that's in control. Um, and they'll just make that small group of bourgeoisie rich at the expense of the masses and uh, take all their, their, their natural resources and oil and whatnot. Now with China, they're, they're creating alternatives. So, so the Congo doesn't have to use Western imperialists and they don't have to use the, they don't have to use the IMF or the world bank to fund their infrastructure projects. Um, if they had a socialist government, they would go to China and ask the Asian investment bank to invest in infrastructure projects on the basis of this mutual benefit. So there's so many, I have a list kind of, of, of all the different programs through all these different countries. So in like, they're building uh, roads, railroads, pipelines, power plants, gas pipelines. They're building huge bridges, airports, like fiber optic networks. They're building huge dams, um, the seaports. There's so many things they're building all across the world. I mean, if you could just Google Belt and Road and, and some of the countries that they're working with, it's a long list. And it's it's... The imperialists are shaking in their boots, trust me, because this is a real challenge to imperialism. Because now, if you're, if you're a third world country, you have a popular, popular revolution or whatever like they had in Venezuela, you, could, you don't have to rely on U.S. imperialism to fund your shit. You can go to China and have a better deal worked out. And so what we're seeing today is <clears throat> this rise in the age of multipolarity. So, so back during the Cold War, there was kind of this bipolarity. There were two poles, communism and capitalism, and you had to choose one. Um, after 1991 and the Clinton era, there was this unipolar era. Um, and you might even call this kind of postmodernism, um, also called the capitalist realism. Capitalist realism. There's this idea that there's no alternative to capitalism. There's this guy Francis Fukuyama who wrote a book called The End of History, suggesting that his that history isn't going to evolve anymore. Um, there isn't going to be a socialism because socialism failed because of the USSR fell, or was actually overthrown in a coup. Um, but that's another thing. <clears throat> but with the rise of China and the Belt and Road Initiative, allowing other countries to rise up um, and have economic development at a level they've never seen before. Um, and there's also Russia, which um, is interesting. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, they went through a decade of humiliation, one of the worst financial disasters, economic disasters the world has seen. Tons of poverty. A lot of people died um, <clears throat> and lots of austerity and repression. But uh, when Putin got into power, who isn't a socialist, but he he did nationalize the oil industry. He renationalized it and uh, started using the profits to, to benefit the people. And so since 2000, when Putin came into power, we've seen a dramatic increase in the standard of living in Russia as well. 
And so there's there's this multipolar world emerging where the U.S. isn't the sole superpower anymore. It can't just push around other countries like it used to. There's there is now a, a check on their power, and it's not just one country checking them like the USSR with their with their arms race. I mean, that's what that was about. It was a check on the U.S.'s power. Now there is multiple countries, and they're all kind of rising up against the U.S. and their imperialism. There was just a vote in the U.N. about a month and a half ago about about whether whether it was okay for the U.S. to impose sanctions on Cuba. Well. Um, However, many uh, there was only three countries that voted in line with the U.S. or two countries that voted with the U.S., three countries that abstained, and 150 or 160 or 180, I can't remember the number, 180 countries opposed the U.S. sanctions on Cuba, which have been in place for like 30 years now, which is just disgusting because sanctions kill. They prevent food and medicine from entering the country they hurt the most vulnerable people of those countries and they're and they're done to to hurt these these uh countries that challenge western imperialism and so the world is starting to stand up against against u.s imperialism and the u.s dollar is is gonna is really facing some precarious times and like I said earlier, we're we're heading towards some kind of major crash, and it's going to be devastating, and that's going to bring about a lot of. It's going to bring the class struggle to the forefront, and I don't know. We're going to see something. Well, we already see it with the 2008 deployment of peer-to-peer digital exchange and happening right at the same time that Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so now you have these decentralized technologies that are emerging at the same time as the monetary disasters happened. And yeah. so, yeah, so we'll we'll see the continuation of that as one of the core um, components. Why don't we talk about CPI now, Center for Political Innovation? And um, we have that up right here as well, <coughs> four-point plan. By the way, this is right here. We, you just talked about Putin, um, public ownership of natural resources. Also, we just had Andy Bittner on the show who has a fractional ownership of uh, renewable energy generation in the United States as well. Um, we just talked about decentralization of banking right here, um, mass mobilization, rebuilding the country, uh, economic bill of rights. So it's great. Yeah, so I have a, a little summary I wrote up about the <clears throat> about the Center for Political Innovation. Uh, I'll just read it off here. Um, it should be going up on the website soon, but it <clears throat> hasn't yet. Um, the website just went up within a few weeks, so cool. We just redid it. Um, we're getting it going, so it's kind of in its early phase. It's not it's not all the way done, but we're still working on it. Um, so the, the Center for Political Innovation is an educational think tank dedicated to educating and fostering visions for a future beyond capitalism. CPI is a working class organization of scientific socialists and 21st century socialists who study the history and experience of past and existing socialist societies. 
and applied their lessons to our current material conditions here in America to develop a new revolutionary program to solve the problems facing society. Marxism and class analysis enable us to look beyond surface level appearances to develop a scientific understanding of our current material conditions and propose innovative solutions for society that serve public need rather than profits at the expense of the many. We understand that capitalism can no longer meet the needs of the American people. Therefore, we believe being a patriot today means to embrace socialism, what we call socialism with American characteristics. We uphold the rich revolutionary tradition of the American people in defeating British colonialism, overthrowing slavery, and working class victories against racism and Jim Crow segregation. The CPI opposes racism, sexism, and all forms of oppression. We recognize our historical mission to oppose imperialism, the global neoliberal economic system of monopoly finance capital that keeps workers here and abroad poor. There is an urgent need in America to restructure the left around a new vision in contrast to the woke synthetic left tendencies that advocate destruction, violence, and culture wars, the CPI promotes the city building tendency of social welfare, of social wealth and abundance required to build socialism and rescue America. To accomplish this, to accomplish this vision, we propose a government of action to fight for working class families. With this revolutionary program, we the people will once again be able to realize the ideals of liberty and equality that America was founded on. And so with that, um, the Center for Political Innovation has proposed a four-point four plan. So we, we have a vision for what socialism will look like in America. So the first one is the massive infrastructure reconstruction building roads, high-speed rail, energy, Wi-Fi, irrigation, building schools, and having five-year plans to develop the, the economic, the, uh, <clears throat> to develop the means of production. The, the second point is the public ownership of energy and natural resources. So um, taking control of the oil industry, natural gas, coal, timber, and using those profits, not, not so a few rich people can get profits, not so a few rich people can get more rich, but to use the profits in a way that serves the masses. Maybe that's how we could pay for all the infrastructure programs we wanna do. Also, part of this program is developing nuclear energy, which would free us from, from not only needing oil for energy, but also um, deal with the climate crisis. I'll talk about that a little bit more. And uh, the third point is public control of banking. So using cr credit strategically assigned by the state in the interests of the country. Um, instead of having a private central bank like we have today with the Federal Reserve, um, which does a lot of things, they're not very transparent about how they use the profits. Um, the third or the fourth point is the economic bill of rights. And so this was, this was the idea or program proposed by FDR that never, never went through. Um, but it's, 
it's basically just social programs. So a job guarantee or to deal with unemployment, housing, education, and healthcare. <clears throat> so those are the four points that would, that would help us transition to a socialist society. So in addition to that, we have a couple, couple policy, policy proposal solutions regarding climate change and the energy crisis. We're proposing that we build Fusion City now. So um, our idea is that we would build, build a new city in the heartland of America where we hire all the world's best, best scientists to work on developing nuclear fusion and nuclear fusion energy. So we can free ourselves from oil and stop polluting the planet. And that is the solution to climate change. One of the problems the left gets into, the <clears throat> Western leftists get into, is that they have this Malthusian mindset and ideas about, about, the, about the environment. They blame things like overpopulation. Well, that's just a ridiculous myth, actually. What, overpopulation isn't the problem. It's we have all the resources already to deal with this, these problems. Um, the, the solution is, is economic development and building, building fusion energy, which would be an actual alternative. Um, so this would bring a flow of a flow of jobs into the Midwest and the rural areas that are traditionally have been kind of left behind. Um, you'd create lots of ec economic development. And it could also maybe, we're still working out the details of this vision, but it maybe could be like a, a, a hub for the, for the um, high-speed rail network that we would build. The, the, second the second policy proposal that we're trying to articulate is how to deal with the immigration crisis at the border. And so the reason that has, the reason there is an immigration crisis is because of neoliberalism, because of the destruction of social programs to, to filter up to the richest national bourgeoisie in Latin America. NAFTA ruined, ruined Mexico um, and like Honduras and Guatemala have just been, like, when they had a, a socialist movement, it was, it was cut down. And, um, and so that, that Latin America hasn't been able to have economic development because imperialism has been keeping them poor. The solution is to build the Sandino Zapata economic corridor to build infrastructure through Latin America and having economic development projects that will actually develop those countries in a way that's, that's not imperialism, that would actually lift up those people economically. Um, so the solution, and okay, so the Sandino is a, is a famous revolutionary from Nicaragua who kind of um, inspired the, the socialist revolution that occurred there in the 70s. And Zapata was a famous revolutionary in Mexico. And so it's kind of named after those two characters. Um, but it's all about economic development 
through Latin America, building a rail line and, uh, and um, economic hubs to kind of like the kind of like the Belt and Road in uh, America. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what we need is is an American Belt and Road, or we could even get on the Belt and Road with China. We should be working with China. And Biden, yeah. the way he talks is that he wants to, he sees China as a threat. He wants to fight them. He wants to beat them in the 21st century or whatever. We're not- Same, gonna- same, same thing with Americans in general. There's this vibration that is um, non-cooperative uh, and it's totally promulgated by mass media hysteria. And it has nothing to do with our friendship um, with friends and families across um, the multi-thousand-year cultural lineage that is China and India and Asia in general and our brothers and sisters in Africa and Europe and the Middle East and Latin America and South America is fucking work together as a planet with everyone maximizing everyone's potential and enough of the mass media hypocrisy pinning people against each other and this is where all of the decentralization of not only banking but also of energy with fractional ownership of stocks fractional ownership of energy renewable clean energy um, massive infrastructure renovation and I love uh, what the CPI has in their four-point plan and I also uh, love how in doing these architectural upgrades, it enables the awakening of consciousness from its contracted energies and lenses of perception to more self-actualized and self-realized um, states. It's beautiful. It's, it's, a mand- it's necessary for planetary prosperity. Exactly. <clears throat> so one of, our, one of our famous slogans um, is that we need a government of action to fight for working families. We need a government of action to fight for working families. The government we have now is not a government of action. They're doing what they need to do to sustain their own capitalist class and their profits for the global elite. They're not working in the interests of the people. Why don't we have health care? This system is just decaying, dying system. It's, it's such a problem. It needs to be fixed, but it's never going to get fixed because there's no profit incentive in place. And there can't be profit incentives with the way capitalism is at the crosshairs it's, it's at today. So really what, what this four-point plan is, is, it's a vision for an alternative America, a socialist America. It's something that we can look at these points and, and visualize what, what we could achieve. We could have massive infrastructure. Why do we have crumbling roads today? Why don't we have high-speed rail? All these obvious things. We could actually have these if we had if we had a, a real socialist movement a large massive popular movement fighting and advocating for these these positions yeah it's the 
radical decentralization and universalization of planetary prosperity for all humans and all species. And it's beautiful. And I, I love it. I love it. It's that I, there, the amount of baggage associated with words like capitalism and communism and socialism and individualism and collectivism. There's so much baggage associated with those words, but what is fresh and what is clean and what is new is uh, decentralization, universalization, um, planetary prosperity, awakening and architectures. And those are like new, fresh, clean words. And um, they speak to what we so deeply in our hearts know is possible. And it's so exciting that we're figuring out how to implement that and how to awaken to that. And do you feel like we're, um, we're also ready to wrap with these, um, the Marxist myths and misunderstandings as well? Yeah, we can talk about some of those. <clears throat> um, I'm going to use the bathroom, but you kick us off with this again. Do you need to use the bathroom or are you good? I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Kick us off with this. I'll be right back. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of Marxist myths and misunderstandings. Um, I think where some of this comes is that in the West, we're stuck in this liberal angle in, liberal Anglo box. And so we tend to impose our liberal ideology into what we believe is democracy or freedom. We tend to, we tend to impose that idea in how we think about other countries. And this is a huge mistake because um, the historical context is a lot different here versus a socialist or anti-imperialist country. And so one of the big mistakes that Western leftists tend to do is that they, they hate, they hate actually existing socialist countries and anti-imperialist countries. And they see them as non-democratic or they lack freedom and they, they say things like China's capitalists or imperialists. Um, but understanding that this idea that they're up against a huge mountain of imperialism, this huge world global financial social order, they have these, these states have to evolve in the way they, they oppose they oppose imperialism. So one of the teachings of Lenin from the experiment that happened with the Paris Commune is that we need a strong state. And this is really important to not only prevent counter-revolution that could happen internally, but prevent invasions from outside, from the Western imperialists. And so in the USSR, after, after they had the Russian Revolution in 1918, in October, they were invaded by 15 imperialist countries, and they had a civil war 
with with um, the people who were advocating capitalism, and they had a famine. They had all these huge problems that they needed a strong state to deal with. And so that's why a lot of these repressive measures were introduced. And that's why the socialist states have to be somewhat repressive in because that they're, they need to protect the revolution. Um, and so the Paris Commune was where the communists took over, but they didn't take control of the state institutions. And so they were quickly, it was quickly dissolved within about a month, I, I believe, um, because they didn't have a strong state to protect the revolution. It, it just, it just uh, got destroyed. Um, so there's this need for a strong state or what Lenin called the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's why these, these countries are more authoritarian or they seem that way. That's a word that we really need to avoid as, as uh, Marxists, I believe, because it's kind of only used by the West in, in, criticizing, in criticizing socialist countries. They call them authoritarian. And, and both, both state societies are, are highly authoritarian. Um, there's a strong class rule in America. They control the state and they use it to, to bomb other countries and to impose austerity across the, against the people. There's a strong state, but a weak government. We don't have a government of action. The government doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve the people. Um, so I think that's just one big confusion. And there's kind of these new age leftists that you'll see. They'll call themselves libertarian socialists or even anarchists or people who advocate kind of this co-op society um, that could coexist with, that could have socialism coexisting with capitalism. Um, some of these people try to say that socialism is when you get together with your friends and make a pencil factory. Um, this isn't, this isn't socialism. None of this stuff is it's taking socialism is when you take control of the major centers of the economy and use the profits to serve the public need rather than just a few. Um, so it's taking control of the state machinery um, and the major sectors of the economy to serve the people. And so Marxism is the city building tendency. It's an optimistic outlook. And that's, that's in contrast to this woke synthetic left that's emerged who advocates destruction and violence and primitivism. They advocate for a violent overthrow. Marxists advocate for a peaceful transition to socialism. A lot of these leftists advocate left adventurism, which is, um, and one example is Antifa, going around destroying communities and, and causing and bringing violence in attempt to uh, change the system or, or whatever. In the 60s, there is the, the weathermen or the students for, uh, students for democracy. Or, 
SDS and, and they were, they advocated violence. Um, and so, and, and destruction and that's around the, sorry about the noise, um, around the environment. Again, they have this overpopulation idea. They think that we needed to destroy society. So everyone's poor. That's not Marxism. Marxism is about making everyone wealthy, building everyone up. So we have the social wealth and abundance to create, to create and build socialism and eventually reach the higher stages of socialism or also called communism, which would be a stateless, classless, moneyless society where we don't need a strong state, where we don't have this division of classes in society. We can use socialism as a transition from capitalism to communism to eliminate those contradictions, to resolve those contradictions and um, eventually create a stateless society. But it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a very far out vision. Um, and we don't know what communism will look like. That's, that's a way in the future. Um, so, so some terms that are used to describe this group, um, Western leftists, the Chinese have a term called Baizu, which refers to Western leftists. Um, I think they're utopian. There's, they're often called ultras, which is short just for ultra leftists. Um, also, Lenin has a book called Left-Wing Communism in infantile disorder where he polemicizes against this tendency. Um, and so one of the problems that this, this left tendency, in addition to the violence and destruction, they push identity politics and critical race theory. They're the social justice warriors. They, po they promote postmodern ideology um, a new definition that I've heard of postmodernism is the, this rejection of grand narratives. It's a rejection of ideology. Um, <clears throat> and so that's their problem is that they're, they, they don't believe in ideology and they, they kind of reduce the conflicts in society in a way that is devoid of class analysis in a way that elevates race or gender or um, like trans issues to the surface without understanding the class dynamics that gave rise to those, to those struggles. And so really they're missing a class analysis and an understanding of imperialism and economics. And ultimately, um, figures like that are within this sphere, they end up being very anti-communist. Um, one of the main figures is Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky has a lot of bad things to say about the USSR. And, and what are his motives for criticizing the USSR? That's another thing we have to ask ourselves when these Western leftists start going on about how bad China is. Or, or Syria or Russia, um, we need to ask themselves, wh whose interest does it serve by them criticizing 
what they're doing. They're trying to build socialism in their country. Um, what what's the role of a Western leftist to tell to tell these lifelong Marxists that are working in their countries to develop socialism? Why why is it their role to tell them what to what to do and what's best for their people? Um, so I think we need to kind of step back as Western leftists and. <clears throat> And we can critically support these countries, but but it's I think it's it's a we get into some trouble when we when we when we, when we start imposing our liberal ideas of democracy and freedom onto China and saying they're not free because of free speech or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so. Yeah, so another problem with these utopian synthetic woke leftists is they hate America. They hate the US flag, they hate American culture, and they see regular Americans, regular working class Americans as the enemy, as the problem. So they they call Trumpers fascists. And this is a mistake. They're not fascists, and they're not they're not white supremacists either. Yeah, there's problems with Trump and his rhetoric and everything, but really what these people represent is that they are upset with the social order of things and they they want an alternative way out. And Trump just so happens to be one of the few people uh, articulating an anti-establishment message. And they're also kind of fighting this culture war that's being pushed by this fake left. There's also elements of the CIA kind of funding and developing this fake left tendency in the United States. You can uh, research the Congress for Cultural Freedom and um, the Partisan Review and some of the influences that the CIA has had in developing this class, this, this uh, tendency that's devoid of class analysis. So one of the conclusions of this tendency is that they they conclude that the American or the white working class is non-revolutionary, that they're that we have no revolutionary potential, and that revolution can't happen in in America because it's the core, it's the the heart of imperialism, and we have a labor aristocracy that we benefit from imperialism. But what they don't understand is that that's been like neoliberalism has destroyed the the labor aristocracy what we had is is being is being dissolved um and so working class americans know this and they are fight they want to fight this and so there's a movement happening underneath the surface underneath the liberal the liberal surface level like what the media is telling us is what's happening there's something deeper happening, and I think we would call that communism. And that's kind of a new kind of a new learning that I've had recently and under, understanding what is communism. It's a movement. It's a movement against those against the social order of things. So I think I covered most of the most of the things here. Yep. And then we can also visit some of these 
recommendations and books for people uh, on the way out. You mentioned infrared already. You mentioned the Center for Political Innovation. Um, you yeah, so in the Center for Political Innovation, um, we uh, published this, this manual that has um, a lot of text from Caleb Maupin, um, but also Lenin, Mao, and some, some American progressives and, and revolutionaries as well um, that we've, we've created to kind of um, use for study groups and to help educate, help use as a tool to help educate the masses. Um, so you can check, check out, check this book out and some of the other, some of the other books that we've produced. Um, we also do web conferences. We used to do them every month, but now we're there about every other month um, just because we started to do live events because COVID is finally done. Um, that's why I'm going to LA at the end of August. We're going to have a conference somewhere down there. Um, we're starting to, to organize locally and, and um, actually reach, reach the masses. So one of the problems with, with um, Marxist groups in the past is that they're kind of stuck in the movement, kind of stuck in their own politics of their own party. And we have a bunch of communist parties, Marxist-Leninist parties in America, but they're not, they're not educating the public. And so they're kind of, they're kind of ahead in, in um, they're kind of too far ahead in that we need a, we don't have a, a populist socialist movement quite yet for us to build a party upon. And so that's what we're focused on is, is really educating the masses. And so we're going to start going out into the public and um, start talking to actual real life people about socialism and, and our vision for, for a different, for a different socialist America. Um, <clears throat> so I would really recommend um, checking out Caleb Malpin's content. He has a YouTube channel and I found him in like late October, November last year. Um, but since then I've been, I've learned a ton from this guy. Um, so I couldn't recommend him anymore. He, he wrote this book, city builders and vandals in our age, um, getting rich without capitalism. Um, and recently he wrote a polemic against the synthetic woke left or, or um, this online phenomena called BreadTube, um, called BreadTube Serves Imperialism, which has gotten a lot of interest online and it kind of exposes, exposes these fake synthetic leftists that are really controlling the narrative of what socialism and they're, def they're the ones defining socialism. More people, more people are using YouTube today to learn about socialism than, than are involved in the Marxist-Leninist parties and such. And so it was an important task today to kind of challenge this, this fake narrative and kind of expose them for what they are. Um, <clears throat> another, another guy I've learned from a lot recently is Infrared, um, which is a, led by Haas, but um, it's a collective of, of communists and Marxist-Leninists. And uh, they're mostly on Twitch. Uh, they stream on Twitch and um, 
he has a lot more focus on philosophy and I'm still learning a lot from this guy. Um, but having the philosophical understanding of Marxism, it goes really, really deep. And um, he's trying to create kind of a, a new, a new brand to kind of reorientate the left as well and kind of get us out of the problems that we've been in. Another, another guy I'd recommend is Jackson Hinkle. He has another uh, stream that he does a few times a week. That's pretty good. He talks about a lot of news and he's had a pretty intense political transformation as well. Um, becoming a Marxist Leninist just recently. Um, I would also recommend Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, Aaron Matei. Um, they've all, they're more progressive, I would say, but they're, they're on the, they're on the right side of being, being progressive and that they, they, they really understand the struggle of the working class. They understand, they understand imperialism and the wars and the problems with neoliberalism. And it was really Jimmy Dore who got me, who, who helped me become radicalized and to become a leftist and, and started seeking out Marxist literature and whatnot. <clears throat> so I would highly recommend Caleb Malpin and Fred, Jimmy Dore, all those guys. Um, yeah, so I also have some books on, on the list. There's so many good books, but uh, yeah, just um, read a bunch of Marx and Lenin. The Manifesto, I would recommend that. Um, this, this is probably the most concise understanding of, of communism. Um, it, it just goes through the whole project of what, what Marx is trying to do and a really con concise, quick, and easy to understand way, I think. It's, it was the first book that I really read that was, that was by Marx and really got me started on this whole journey. Um, Critique of the Gotha Program, I would also highly recommend um, so the Gotha program was a, kind of the social democrat welfare state program advocated by Germany, the German social democrats in the 1980, in the 1800s, late 1800s. And Marx wrote a whole critique on how they were kind of misreading Marxism and that um, they were, they weren't really, yeah, they weren't really practicing Marxism and, and their program wasn't socialist. So. This is a really good polemic to understand the pitfalls that the left makes. Um, Lenin's State and Revolution is a must. This is a really essential text for understanding for understanding the role of the state and understanding the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, both Lenin and Mao were had a really powerful in the way they're able to distill Marxism down into a way that regular working class people could understand. And so understanding or reading Mark, um, reading Lenin and Mao is a really good way to, to kind of get a, a concise understanding. Cause sometimes it's hard to read Marx's old texts and Marx and Engels. Cause it's from the 1800s. It's, it's, it's just, Sometimes it's a little too old to understand. Um, 
so yeah, I have Mao, Mao's book here on contradiction is and on practice are really good. It's all, all about explaining dialectics in a way that regular working class people can understand. He has a, an um, he has a, a pamphlet in here called Combat Liberalism, which which is really good in, in fighting the ideology that that we have to fight as communists. Um, Lenin has a really good pamphlet called the letter to American letter to American workers, which I'd also highly recommend where he, he, he writes a letter to the American workers in 1918, right after like right in the midst of their civil war and in the 15 countries invading the Soviet Russia, one of which was the United States. And um, really ex making uh, articulating the idea that that we're all we're all in this together against imperialism, and um, really trying to um, reach the working class in America, and explain how imperialism is is hurting is hurting not only the Russians but it's it's hurting American people as well. Um, it's a it's a really powerful text. Uh, also, I would like to recommend Michael Parenti. Um, this, I'm actually just about to finish my next video. It's going to be a book review about this book, which is really, really well done. It was written in 19, 1997. And so he's, he's one of the most contemporary Marxist-Leninist writers that we can learn from. He's written a lot of really good books. Uh, another one was Against Empire, which I used a lot of quotes from in my last video on imperialism. Um, but this book is really essential because it it um, kind of um, he explains how he explains the 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 mistake that many leftists get into, where they they equate fascism with communism. It explains that. Fascism. There was actual economic and class interests, and there was a rational reason why fascism emerged, and that it's completely different from what how communists thought about how how communists did things and the programs they offered and the kind of class nature of those societies it was very different. Um, see this oh, here's the letter to American workers um, this book capitalist realism covers a lot of modern topics as well um, this was written in 2009 um, so it talks a lot about postmodernism and kind of the this uh, really toxic ideology that we've taken on in in the west and capitalist realism as he defines is there is no alternative this idea that that um socialism has always failed and that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than, than to imagine the end of capitalism and so on that note um xi jinping would recommend kind of reading his work or just checking out his speech he gave an hour speech just last month 
or earlier this month, not long ago, um, at the at the Chinese at the Communist Party of China's 100-year centenary. Um, so it's 100 years since the formation of the Communist Party in 1921. He gave one a really amazing speech where he he articulated the socialist project of China and highlighted a lot of their achievements and kind of put forth what their program is going to be for what their program is going to be like in the future. And right now it's really important for us to understand China, understand what they're doing because China is the future. Like you said, China is, is on a, on a, trajectory to surpass the U.S. in almost every metric. Um, it's really important that we understand China and what they're doing and how we can apply lessons from China to America in developing socialism with American characteristics. Um, socialism applied to the material con conditions of America, just like how Deng Xiaoping and Xi Jinping were able to do in China. We should be doing something similar here in America. Yeah, I would also just like to, again, recommend checking out K Caleb Maupin's work. Um, he does live streams several times a week for an hour, two hours. He'll answer any question you have. He's like he's a walking encyclopedia. This guy's been studying Marxism for like 15 years. He's the best resource out there in America, at least. Um, we definitely recommend looking into his work. Nice. <clears throat> nice. So that's a breakdown of these very essence of Marx, class analysis, class consciousness, the perverse incentives across our existing industries and how to flip them towards fractional ownership, seeing the dialectical and historical materialism and how materialism and consciousness feed back into each other and seeing how we're transitioning into a greater scale global awakening uh, in those um, architectures, the decentralization and the universalization um, of our next um, fractional ownership that maximizes human potential and how to see what are um, the next best steps in um, our planetary um, actualization of maximal potential with creating more and more fractional ownership and decentralization and universalization around public control of energy, natural resources, infrastructure, decentralized, universalized banking, and some recommendations for <clears throat> a deeper investigation into this. And it really feels good. It feels good to have been able to play with you, Ryan, on the, all of this. So thanks again for coming on to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for thanks for bringing me on. I'm, I hope this was informative and helpful for your audience. Um, 
it's it's taken me a while to come to the level where I've been able to articulate these ideas. So I think you you kind of hit me at a, an important time where where I finally I think become to come to a understanding of a what I believe is the right politics. Um, like I like I said before, um, being a patriot today, loving your country and your community is means to be a socialist today. And so and so um, we need to throw out the bad ideas of liberalism and capitalism, start seeing the reality of our world and push for push for a new revolutionary program that serves the needs of the people. Beautiful. And I love how there's this big uh, planetary excitement around decentralization, universalization, awakening consciousness around fractional ownership, around maximizing individual and collective prosperity. It's really exciting. And it's definitely the next step is biomimicking fungal networks, biomimicking the way that the, the archetypes of decentralized um, things have emerged like the internet and like cryptocurrencies. And so it's really exciting to bring that more into our social contract and leverage science and engineering and spiritual awakening in that process. So it's really exciting. It's a great time for this. And uh, thank you again for coming on. And yeah, it's been great. It's been great. And thanks everyone for tuning in. You guys can find the links in the bio below to Ryan's YouTube channel, as well as his Twitter and also CPI as well. The link is down there in the bio, check it out and their four point plan. And that is, that is all. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Like the video if it brought you value, subscribe to the channel. If you haven't yet share the video with other people that you feel like this could be an interesting way for them to perceive um, the, the interplay between consciousness awakening and materialism and basic needs being met and decentralization, universalization, etc. And that is, that is all. Thank you again, Cotton. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah. Hopefully I'll see you again on another stream. We'll see. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to wrap this stream. We'll stay in the studio here. So just hold tight. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. <clears throat> Bye.